Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'm bringing you a story that has haunted me for years, the case of Victoria Martins in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I do want to give you a warning this week. This case involves murder, dismemberment, and the sexual assault of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Also, this will be a two-part series. I know, I know. We just covered a case that was two parts. And I thought I could cover this case in a single episode. But the more I researched, the more I realized that everything I thought I knew about this case was wrong. And Victoria's story needs to be told truthfully and in its entirety. So with all that said, let's get right to it. In 2016, 35-year-old Michelle Martins was living in apartment 808 at the Aurora Villas apartment complex on the west side of Albuquerque with her two children. Michelle was originally from the Bronx, but she had first moved to Texas and then to New Mexico, seemingly to find a place to settle down with her two children. There was her daughter, Victoria, who was born on August 23, 2006, and her son, Matthew, born in 2008. Victoria and Matthew didn't have the same father. And when it came to Victoria, Michelle was a single mom. Her dad wasn't in the picture. Things were different with Matthew, and it looks like his biological father was very involved in his son's life. The little boy often spent time at his dad's place. According to KRQE News 13, eventually Michelle's parents retired and moved to Albuquerque to be close to her and the kids so they could help Michelle and spend time with their grandkids. From all appearances, it seemed life in Albuquerque was going pretty well. Michelle had the apartment and had just landed a new job at Smith's Food and Drug. Victoria's godmother, Laura, spoke to NBC News 15 and recalled that on that 4th of July, Michelle and the kids had gathered with friends and family and celebrated the holiday poolside with hot dogs and hamburgers. You see, Laura Bobbs was a local minister who lived in the apartment below Michelle. She frequently spent time with the family and had become a godmother to the children. Just a month later, in early August, Victoria entered the fourth grade at Petroglyph Elementary School. Her teachers and fellow students loved her. She was known for being bright, cheerful, and always having a smile across her face. If you would have asked anybody who knew the family back then, they would have told you that Michelle was a good mom, working hard at the local grocery store for her children, and the kids were taken care of, happy and well-adjusted. But by the end of August, a different picture would emerge, one that shocked not only Michelle's friends and family, but the entire nation. It all began to unfold on August 23, 2016. That was a special day for little Victoria. It was her 10th birthday. She had finally made it to double digits, which if you have a school-aged child in your life, you know double digits are a huge deal. That morning, Victoria headed off to school to celebrate with her classmates, and the party must have been a success. After Victoria made it off the bus that afternoon around 4.25 p.m., according to KRQE News, she spoke to her grandparents, John and Pat, over the phone just after she got back to the apartment at around 5 p.m. They asked how her school party had gone, and Victoria told them it was good. There were cupcakes, and the class had sang happy birthday to her. As it turned out, Victoria's birthday fell on a Tuesday, so the plan was for her to celebrate at school that day and to have her official party that weekend. When John and Pat spoke to their granddaughter over the phone, 
everything seemed normal. They could have never imagined that would be the last time they'd ever speak to her again. According to a criminal complaint in the early morning hours of August 24, 2016, Fabian Gonzalez went to a female neighbor's apartment and began banging on the door, telling the neighbor he had been hit with an iron and he needed her to call 911. That neighbor placed the call, and as she was on the phone with the operator, Michelle Martins also arrived at the apartment, bleeding from an injury to her face. Both she and Fabian could be heard in the background of the 911 call as the neighbor tried to relay the information to the dispatcher. Michelle was frantically stating that she had been attacked, and her 10-year-old daughter was still inside the apartment with the attacker, who was another female. At approximately 4.34 a.m., multiple officers were dispatched to Michelle's apartment in reference to an aggravated battery. They arrived to a chaotic scene and found Michelle Martins bleeding from her head and Michelle's new boyfriend, 31-year-old Fabian Gonzalez, with a black eye and a laceration above his left eye. Fabian's shorts were stained with blood. As officers spoke with Michelle and Fabian, Michelle told them that she was asleep in her apartment and had awoken to her friend, who was also living at the apartment, Jessica Kelly, hitting her in the face with an iron. Michelle and Fabian then fled from the apartment. Fabian had reportedly escaped by jumping over the second floor balcony and running to the neighbors. When questioned about the bloodstains on his shorts, Fabian told the officers that he had been, quote, cleaning himself up prior to their arrival and had taken off his bloody socks. Michelle Martins then told officers that her daughter was still inside the apartment with Jessica Kelly and at some point made the statement that someone had killed her daughter. Officers made their way to apartment number 808 and saw a female who was later identified as Jessica Kelly open the front door. When they called out to her, she slammed the door shut and locked the chain, which prevented them from making entry into the apartment. They called out to her from the other side of the door, identifying themselves as police officers and instructing her to open the door. However, she ignored their demands and instead ran to the balcony and jumped down to the ground level. As officers apprehended Jessica Kelly, the fire alarm for the apartment went off. Jessica was detained and police made their way in the front door of the apartment to search for the 10-year-old girl. What officers discovered behind the door of apartment 808 would haunt them for years to come. Smoke was quickly filling the apartment as they searched every room. When they made it to the bathroom, they found the little girl lying motionless in the bathtub. Her body rolled partially inside of a blanket, and the blanket was on fire. One of the officers grabbed another blanket and was able to extinguish the flames. From what the officer could see initially, due to the blanket being wrapped around her body, was that Victoria had a large laceration to her chest and that her left leg had been almost completely cut off. This officer would later testify that although he knew this child was already deceased, he wanted to do everything he could for her. He stated, One of the things that was really haunting me was that I didn't check for a pulse. Even though I knew she was dead, I didn't make the effort and check for a pulse. So I went back in and checked for a pulse. Unfortunately, there was nothing anyone could do for Victoria Martins. She was already gone. EMS arrived a few moments later and officially pronounced Victoria deceased. Officers secured the scene and began their investigation. As they looked under the blanket that covered Victoria, what they discovered was something far more horrific than they originally thought. Victoria was only partially clothed and her tiny body had been dismembered before being set on fire. Both of her arms had been removed and she had obvious bruising around her neck that appeared to be consistent with strangulation. As officers took a look around the apartment, they found Victoria's arms discarded in a white plastic hamper in the living room near the kitchen. There were bloodstains on the carpet in the little girl's bedroom, 
and it appeared someone attempted to clean them up, as the carpet was still wet. Victoria's underwear were found in a trash can inside the house. Officers noted that they were soiled with what appeared to be blood. As detectives continued to process the scene, investigators interviewed the three adults that were inside the apartment, starting with Fabian Gonzalez. This is where things begin to get murky and a little hard to follow. So before we get into exactly what these fools told investigators, we should go over the relationships and a little bit of background of the three, because there is a lot to unpack. As we know, Michelle Martins was Victoria's mother, who prior to this had no criminal record that I could find publicly. She had dated a few different men leading up to Victoria's murder, most of them coming into the relationship with a criminal record. Fabian Gonzalez was no exception. He was Michelle's current boyfriend. The pair had met on the internet dating site Plenty of Fish about a month prior to her daughter's murder. Things obviously progressed quickly and he was already living in the apartment. According to KRQE News, Gonzalez's past criminal record dated all the way back to 2004 and included a felony child abuse charge, driving while intoxicated, and resisting arrest. In August of 2014, Gonzalez was accused of assaulting his former girlfriend as she drove in the car with their child in the back seat. That case had been pled out in 2015. Fabian Gonzalez pled guilty to two misdemeanor charges and was sentenced to two years of supervised probation. Supervision that should have included drug and alcohol treatment, counseling, random drug testing, and surprise home visits from probation officers. But that supervised probation never happened. And the reason? The Department of Corrections officials told the outlet that they never received the documentation informing them of the plea agreement or that Gonzalez was required to be under their supervision. A district court spokesman refuted that and maintained that the court did send that email and that the email was delivered. Seems a bit ridiculous that a probation sentence would be completely reliant upon a single email, but who am I and what do I know? The corrections department says it has since put a new system in place with a staffer dedicated to reviewing every case, every day, when a plea deal is made. It was too little too late for this case, however, and absolutely nobody was enforcing this guy's sentence, which is devastating because if they had been, you know, as required by law, he likely wouldn't have been allowed to be around minor children, and he most certainly wouldn't have gotten the green light to move his felon cousin into his new girlfriend's apartment. Which brings us to Jessica Kelly. As I just said, Jessica was Gonzalez's cousin, who had been released from prison a little over a week prior to Victoria's murder. And her rap sheet well, holy shit. Let's just say that if the New Mexico Department of Corrections had a loyalty rewards program, she'd have enough points for a hell of a free vacation, upgraded room included. According to DOC records, Jessica Kelly had multiple drug convictions, up to and including drug sales, driving under the influence, assault on a law enforcement officer, as well as resisting arrest and evading police. And then there was the conviction she earned while already behind bars. According to police reports obtained by KOAT News, Jessica Kelly had been convicted of taking part in the sexual assault of a fellow inmate at the Metropolitan Detention Center. The police report stated that the victim was hiding under a bed trying to get away from Kelly and another inmate. Kelly grabbed the victim out from under the bed and stood at the doorway, keeping watch while the other inmate sexually assaulted her. Ultimately, Kelly was convicted of conspiracy, but not the sexual assault itself, which meant that she did not qualify as a sex offender. 
Anyhow, these were the people living in the apartment with Michelle Martins and her children. I'd also like to note that on the night this all took place, thankfully, Michelle's youngest son was staying with his biological father. Back to the story. Obviously, officers needed to talk to all three to get to the bottom of who was responsible for murdering this child. Fabian Gonzalez was up first. He told investigators about how he had met Michelle on Plenty of Fish and gave a brief background on their relationship before moving on to the events leading up to the murder. He stated that on the previous night, August 23rd, which of course was Victoria's birthday, he and Michelle returned to the apartment, from where he didn't exactly say in his initial statement. But that's besides the point. He and Michelle got back around 8 p.m. that night and parked Michelle's gold Buick in front of her apartment. At that point, he saw cousin Jessica walking down the stairs from the apartment, holding Victoria in her arms. When Jessica Kelly saw that they were back, she turned around and headed back up the stairs into the apartment without making contact with them. Eventually, he and Michelle made it inside, where Jessica told them that Victoria was sleeping. He claimed that the three adults sat down and ate tacos for dinner and that Jessica was acting really weird, talking randomly about Jesus. At around midnight, he and Michelle went to bed. But almost two hours later, at around 1.40 a.m., they were woken up by Jessica. She was holding something behind her back as she told them she had their phones. She then asked them if they believed in Jesus, to which Michelle responded, yes. At that point, Jessica stated, you're first, bitch, and pulled an iron from behind her back and struck Fabian in the face with it. And we know the rest. He fled the apartment and ran to the neighbors. When investigators asked if he knew what had happened to Victoria, he initially said he didn't know if she was okay, but later said that Jessica had killed her and cut off her leg. But Fabian denied having any involvement. It was obvious that his story wasn't completely true for many reasons, but possibly the two most obvious were that the timeline didn't match up. And if he hadn't taken part in the child's murder, then how did he know that she had been murdered and then dismembered? He had never said anything about walking into the bathroom and seeing the child, or that Jessica had told him anything about what had happened. According to his own statement, the last he knew was that Victoria was asleep. And if he were awoken at 2 a.m., why did it take nearly two hours for him to jump off the balcony and run to the neighbor's apartment after being attacked by Jessica? Because that 911 call wasn't placed until after 4 a.m. The math just wasn't mathin'. But perhaps Michelle would be more forthcoming. She started her story the same way describing how she and Fabian Gonzalez met and how Jessica Kelly came to live in the apartment. But that was where the similarities in the tale ended, and Michelle had a whole nother story. She told investigators that the previous night, her boyfriend Fabian and Jessica had given Victoria methamphetamines to calm her down so they could sexually assault her. Michelle claimed that Jessica held her hand over the girl's mouth and the two women watched as Fabian sexually assaulted the 10-year-old girl. When the assault was over, Fabian Gonzalez had murdered Victoria by choking her. At that point, Jessica Kelly stabbed Victoria in the torso, and then assisted Fabian by holding the child's arms as he dismembered her. According to Michelle, it was Jessica who had placed Victoria's lifeless body in that bathtub, before placing her arms in plastic bags. In later statements given to police, Michelle Martins changed her story multiple times, and at one point told investigators that this was not the first time she had watched someone sexually assault her daughter. According to those statements obtained by KOAT News, Michelle said that she had trafficked Victoria in the past. She stated that she had met men online and watched as they assaulted her child for her own sexual gratification. 
What Michelle Martins confessed to detectives was unimaginable. Even the most seasoned investigators were stunned. After interviewing Michelle, investigators went to speak to Jessica Kelly, who was at the University of New Mexico Hospital. The reason she had been transported to the hospital? Well, when she jumped over that balcony in her attempted escape, she had reportedly injured her ankle. Body-worn camera footage later released by the police department shows Jessica whining about her ankle as an officer attempted to escort her to his car. That officer took zero pity on the woman as he forced her to walk. And honestly, who could blame him? He had just been notified that a child's body had been found in the apartment she had just attempted to escape from. I don't think he could have fake concern for her if he had gone to Juilliard acting school. But Jessica wasn't interested in talking and immediately requested an attorney. However, investigators didn't need Jessica's statement to press charges. They claimed there was enough evidence at the scene, and with Michelle's confession, all three faced multiple charges, including intentional abuse of a child, aggravated criminal sexual penetration, murder, and tampering with evidence. As news broke of what had happened, the entire community was devastated that this could happen to an innocent 10-year-old child. Hey, y'all. This week, I want to introduce you to a true crime podcast called Campus Crime Chronicles. The show is hosted by Nicole Turner, a professor and student conduct administrator with a background in journalism, who deep dives into cases involving college students and crimes involving colleges and universities, reporting on how these cases negatively affect college communities, all while keeping the focus on the victims and promoting their justice. The latest episode features the case of Cindy Song, a 21-year-old senior at Penn State who disappeared in the early morning hours of November 1st, 2001 after going out with her friends to celebrate Halloween. You can find Campus Crime Chronicles on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now to hear Cindy's story or the many others Nicole has covered. New episodes drop on Mondays, so be sure to check it out. Multiple vigils were organized in Victoria Martin's honor, and the community grieved her tragic loss as if she were their own child. There were makeshift memorials set up at the apartment complex and Victoria's school. According to the Albuquerque Journal, days after the murder, a symbolic birthday party was held for Victoria on the west side of Albuquerque. Thousands of people showed up, wearing the color purple, which was her favorite. It was a six-hour event with pizza and cake and tons of donations of stuffed animals, prayers, and an outpouring of love and support. The event ended with a candlelight vigil and thousands of people singing happy birthday to the little girl whose life ended hours after her 10th birthday. It was the celebration Victoria Martins never got the chance to have. Albuquerque Police Chief Gordon Eden spoke at the event and said he'd never seen an incident tear at the heart of his officers in the way Victoria's death had and that the party held in Victoria's honor spoke to the heart of the people of Albuquerque. And he was right. The community came together and honored Victoria in a beautiful way. But even as they gathered to celebrate her life and grieve her loss, they made one thing crystal clear. They wanted justice. In September of 2016, all three defendants were formally arraigned on their charges and all three entered a plea of not guilty. But before there was even a trial, due in part to the outcry of the community, officials began releasing information to the public. Just as everyone thought there was no way possible this case could get any more horrific, it did just that. In November of 2016, the autopsy report was released, which confirmed that Victoria had been manually strangled. There were multiple abrasions and bruises on her head and neck, 
and petechial hemorrhaging present in and around both of her eyes. The medical examiner would later testify that injuries to Victoria's face were consistent with a hand being pushed against her mouth and that she had suffered a blunt injury on top of her skull. Her body had been dismembered post-mortem. In addition to her arms being removed, her chest had been cut open and organs had also been taken. They were located in the apartment wrapped in plastic bags. Victoria's body had then been wrapped in a blanket and set on fire. The autopsy also revealed that this child had been the victim of prior sexual abuse, and at the time of her death, she was suffering from a sexually transmitted disease. For all the injuries and the abuse discovered at the post-mortem exam, one thing wasn't found, and that was the presence of any drugs in Victoria's system. If you recall, Michelle had claimed that prior to the child's assault, she had been given methamphetamines. But that couldn't have been true, because if she had, they would have still been detected, but they weren't. Had Michelle Martins lied in her confession? I mean, it wouldn't exactly be shocking that a suspect would lie. But that detail definitely didn't do her any favors. Why would she lie about that? According to KOAT News, in January of 2017, newly elected District Attorney Raul Torres took office and began reviewing Victoria's case. He expressed concern with how the case had originally been handled. So he assigned a new team of investigators to take over the case. On January 21, 2017, New Mexico Children, Youth, and Families Department, or CYFD, released an internal audit of Victoria Martin's case. You see, prior to Victoria's murder, the agency had received five phone calls regarding Victoria and her little brother. According to those reports, most of the calls came from Michelle Martins herself, accusing her son's father of neglecting the little boy. She claimed that he didn't keep up with her son's hygiene and that she also had what were referred to as babysitter concerns. All of the claims Michelle made against the little boy's father were investigated and found to be unsubstantiated. But there were two calls that were not placed by Michelle after those three that were. The first came on March 14th of 2015. The caller reported that Victoria and her siblings had poor hygiene, dirty clothes, and that Michelle Martins and one of the children's grandparents consumed alcohol in front of the children. Further, the caller claimed that the grandparent had improperly disciplined Victoria's brother. The report doesn't specify exactly what that improper discipline was. And after it was investigated and the children were interviewed, those claims were also found to be unsubstantiated. The final and most concerning report was called in on March 28, 2016, five months before Victoria's murder. The caller stated that Michelle Martins had told them that her former boyfriend had previously attempted to kiss her daughter Victoria. I'd like to point out that this boyfriend was not Fabian Gonzalez, but a man named David Hernandez, who, according to KRQE, had been arrested in 2013 after he snatched a little girl from a parking lot, led her mother and officers on a long chase, and later crashed a car. The little girl was thankfully recovered alive. And though Hernandez was arrested, his charges were later dropped after the district attorney's office failed to get evidence to Hernandez's attorney in time. CYFD officials also failed to even investigate the kissing incident between Victoria and Hernandez, stating in the report that the information provided to them by the reporting party indicated that the former boyfriend was not a parent, guardian, or custodian of Victoria. Therefore, it did not fall within CYFD's abuse and neglect jurisdiction and further that they had turned the report over to the Albuquerque Police Department, who also failed to investigate. A spokesperson for the department spoke out to the Albuquerque Journal and stated, 
an attempted rape or a report of a rape is a criminal charge. There is no statute for attempted kissing. While there is no charge for attempted kissing, there could have been an investigation. And if there had been, law enforcement would have learned that the man who had attempted to kiss then nine-year-old Victoria had previously kidnapped a child. But there was not so much as an incident report taken by APD. And according to an attorney for Victoria Martin's grandparents, Michelle Martins claimed after Victoria's murder that Hernandez had actually sexually assaulted her daughter. The grandparents later filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the city of Albuquerque, claiming the Children, Youth, and Families Department, as well as the Albuquerque Police Department, had failed to investigate the allegations. That lawsuit would ultimately get thrown out, but not for the reason you might think. It was dismissed because the judge ruled the grandparents had failed to properly notify the city before suing, a claim that the grandparents and their attorney refute. What in the hell is going on in New Mexico? As the new investigation into Victoria's case got underway, prosecutors and lawyers for all three defendants requested that each of them were tried separately, a request that was granted. But as they all waited for their respective trials, none of them could keep their mouths shut behind bars. KOAT Target 7 News obtained multiple jailhouse phone calls. As Victoria's mother Michelle sat in jail, she bitched about how she didn't deserve any of the hatred she was receiving, stating to her mother, People are saying they're going to get arrested and stuff like that just to come in here and try. They want to freaking kill me. She went on to say, and I don't deserve any of it. In other calls, she and her parents mocked the media and spoke in code, using what her mother referred to as op language, stating, and I quote, op language, mop a top, pop a wop. Yeah, let them record that. Pisses me off. And let me just say, KOAT Target 7 news reporter Nancy Laughlin threw a little snark right back as she reported on the phone calls, all while maintaining the utmost level of professionalism. We love us a good snarky queen around here. Well done, Nancy. While Michelle whined and complained, Fabian Gonzalez claimed his innocence and pointed the blame at his former girlfriend and his cousin Jessica Kelly. Shockingly, Fabian and Jessica were turning on each other. In phone calls with a friend, Jessica claimed this was all Fabian's fault and that she wasn't high the night of the murder. She said, I don't get high to go fuck, dude. I get high to tweak. Charming, I know. In November of 2017, more information was released to the public. KOAT Action News 7 obtained police reports that indicated digital evidence recovered in the case contradicted all three of the suspects' original stories. According to those reports, Michelle Martins was actively on Facebook and used her Facebook to communicate with Jessica and Fabian, long after Fabian had initially reported both of them had gone to bed and well after investigators believed Victoria had been murdered. Records also indicated that Jessica Kelly's phone was used to access a map application moments before police arrived to the apartment after the murder. It was also revealed that a white handbag had been recovered in a laundry basket in the living room. In the handbag were the suspect's IDs, credit cards, and four cell phones. Three of those four phones had been used at the time of the crime. Police believed the defendants were planning to discard those items. On November 23, 2017, everyone was gathered back in the courtroom again, as prosecutors asked the judge for more time to process evidence in the case, because they had over 227 pieces of evidence that they needed examined for DNA. These items were sent to a lab in Florida, which specialized in a new DNA technology 
known as star mix, which is reportedly more accurate when DNA from more than one person is present. The prosecution informed the judge that this would not cause a delay in the first trial scheduled, which was Michelle Martin's. But that DNA testing would lead to an announcement that sent shockwaves throughout the community. On June 29, 2018, Bernalillo County District Attorney Raul Torres held a press conference. And it's something you really got to hear for yourself. So I'm going to play it now in its entirety. Good afternoon. On the morning of August 24, 2016, this community awoke to news of one of the most horrific crimes in the history of this state. The sexual assault, murder, and brutal dismemberment of 10-year-old Victoria Martins. From that day on, the public story about what happened to Victoria, about who was involved, what they did, and ultimately who was responsible, was derived almost exclusively from the statement of a single individual, her mother, Michelle Martins. Today, however, I need to inform you that many of the key elements in Michelle Martin's statement to police were false and that much of what has been reported about this case is simply not true. For the last year and a half, my office, working in close coordination with detectives from the Albuquerque Police Department, has dedicated thousands of hours, conducted hundreds of interviews, and consulted with a range of experts in psychology, pathology, DNA, and computer forensics. And as a result of that exhaustive investigation, we have come to the following conclusions. First, although there is evidence that Victoria Martins was sexually assaulted at or near the time of her death, there is no physical evidence linking Fabian Gonzalez to that specific crime and no independent forensic evidence that Michelle Martins knowingly permitted her daughter to be sexually assaulted on that day or at any other time. Second, multiple eyewitness statements and extensive forensic analysis of cell phone location data confirm that neither Michelle Martins nor Fabian Gonzalez were present in the apartment at the time of the rape and murder. Third, exhaustive DNA testing by the state lab has confirmed that although male DNA was recovered from Victoria's body, the lab was able to exclude Fabian Gonzalez and every other known male who might have had contact with Victoria's body, including Victoria's brother, various law enforcement officers, and first responders at the scene. In light of this information, and given the specific location of the unknown male DNA on her body, we have determined that at least one unidentified man was involved in this crime and never apprehended. I recognize that these revelations are not consistent with the public's perception about what happened to Victoria, but I want to share this information with you in order to help the community understand where this case is going and ultimately assist in the apprehension of everyone involved in this horrific crime. The first step in understanding how this case evolved must begin with an in-depth look at the steps the District Attorney's Office has taken as we seek to find the truth and bring Victoria's killers to justice. Upon assuming office in January of 2017, I immediately ordered a comprehensive review of the case against Michelle Martins, Fabian Gonzalez, and Jessica Kelly. Although the matter had been pending for several months at that point, I was concerned that a substantial amount of investigative work had not yet been initiated. Specifically, an in-depth analysis of the cell phone records and location data, detailed pretrial witness interviews from key eyewitnesses, and forensic examinations of various biological samples collected at the scene. As a result, I determined that it was necessary to establish a dedicated team of experienced prosecutors, paralegals, and support staff to undertake the monumental task of, of completing the necessary investigative work and preparing the case for trial. The team immediately requested expedited DNA analysis of multiple biological samples, obtained court orders for cell phone records and location data, clarified a number of outstanding questions, regarding the forensic pathology and conducted in-person interviews with a number of primary witnesses. After initiating this process in June of 2017, we received startling information 
from the state lab regarding the presence of an unknown male profile on Victoria's body. At that point in the investigation, we did not know if this DNA might have been the result of transfer or scene contamination and began the arduous process of trying to eliminate all law enforcement and first responders from the pool of potential contributors. At the same time, we received detailed information from several key witnesses at the scene, which narrowed the time of Victoria's death to between 7 p.m. and 8.45 p.m. on the evening of August the 23rd. More importantly, however, these same eyewitnesses provided detailed, independent accounts that Victoria was seen alive after her mother and Fabian had left the apartment, but that her apparently lifeless body was seen before they returned inside. As a result of the DNA findings and this critical eyewitness testimony, the team began to have serious doubts about the credibility of several key elements in Michelle Martin's statement to police. Indeed, she had given multiple conflicting statements about the cause of Victoria's death, ranging from accidental overdose to suffocation to stabbing and finally strangulation. More importantly, however, the timeline she provided to police regarding her movements and that of her two co-defendants did not align with the physical evidence recovered at the scene and statements provided by multiple independent witnesses. In light of the team's deepening concerns over these initial findings, in the summer of 2017, I made a special request to the Albuquerque Police Department that we receive additional investigative support to track down leads and evaluate a growing body of evidence that seemed to contradict the final version of events set forth in Michelle Martin's statement. Thankfully, APD granted my request and detailed two experienced detectives to augment the ongoing work of the primary case agent. Joined by these detectives, our team ordered additional specialized DNA analysis from an independent lab, located and interviewed additional eyewitnesses and known associates, and obtained more comprehensive cell phone information related to all three defendants, including detailed GPS location data from both cell phone carriers and Google applications. With each new round of testing and with each additional piece of information, more and more doubt was cast on Michelle Martin's direct involvement in the murder of her daughter, Victoria. Indeed, we were forced to consider the possibility that Michelle Martin's had falsely incriminated herself and Fabian Gonzalez in this heinous act. As you can imagine, the idea that a mother would falsely admit to witnessing the horrific acts in this case was hard to comprehend. But in light of the growing body of evidence that directly contradicted her narrative, we were forced to carefully examine that possibility. To that end, in August 2017, I directed the team to contact one of the nation's foremost forensic psychiatrists, Dr. Michael Wellner, chairman of the forensic panel, to methodically examine Michelle Martin's statement to police, her psychological background, and indeed Michelle Martin's herself. To aid in this evaluation, we provided Dr. Wellner with all relevant background information we had on Michelle Martin's including her videotaped statement to police from the day of the incident and other case-related materials. Dr. Wellner also sought out and interviewed a range of witnesses who have known Michelle Martins for years. Finally, in March of 2018, we arranged for Dr. Wellner to conduct an in-person interview with Michelle Martins to evaluate the possibility of her susceptibility to providing false information to police. After examining all the background information, Reviewing her videotaped statement and conducting an in-person interview, Dr. Wellner concluded that Michelle Martins made numerous false admissions to police. Specifically, he noted that although she was not coerced, several factors relating to the structure of the interview, her recent intoxication, post-concussive trauma, and suggestive questioning, all contributed to her providing statements to police that were not truthful. He also noted that her statements were often contradictory, inconsistent, and evasive. Dr. Wellner further noted that she exhibited a unique set of personality traits that made her susceptible to providing false information on matters of grave importance. Indeed, multiple sources confirmed that years earlier, Michelle Martins denied that she was pregnant up until the day she had actually given birth to Victoria. In light of this unique psychological profile and considerable independent forensic evidence, we were forced to reevaluate the basic foundation of the case given the following information. 
One, Michelle Martin's statement to police was evasive, inconsistent, and filled with provable, factual inaccuracies. Two, several key elements, including the assertion that she trafficked her daughter for sex or witnessed her sexual assault and murder, either could not be independently corroborated through forensic analysis or flatly contradicted by the physical evidence. Three, several witnesses not only provided a precise window with respect to when the crimes were committed, but also independent verification of the fact that neither Michelle nor Fabian were present in the apartment at the time. Four, cell phone and detailed Google location data corroborated those eyewitness accounts and definitively placed Michelle and Fabian outside the apartment at the time of the rape and murder. Five, multiple biological samples recovered from Victoria's body demonstrate that although male DNA was present, none of that DNA was positively linked to Fabian Gonzalez, and at least one unidentified male profile was found on the body. Not surprisingly, this new evidence has dramatically affected the criminal cases against two of the three currently charged co-defendants. After verifying that neither Michelle nor Fabian were present at the time of Victoria's rape or murder, a fact confirmed by multiple independent sources, we concluded that those specific charges must be dropped from their respective indictments. At the same time, however, we have also determined that there is a strong factual basis to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that both engaged in child abuse by placing Victoria in an obviously dangerous situation which ultimately resulted in her death. In keeping with that assessment, Michelle Martins has today accepted responsibility for her role in allowing Victoria to be placed in a position of danger. And at 1.30 this afternoon, she pled guilty to one count of reckless child abuse resulting in death. She faces a possible sentence of 12 to 15 years in prison and is expected to cooperate in the future prosecution of the two currently charged co-defendants and assist law enforcement in identifying and prosecuting any other individuals found to have participated in this heinous crime. Likewise, we have also filed a motion to amend the indictment against Fabian Gonzalez, removing counts pertaining to his alleged participation in the sexual assault and murder, while maintaining charges of child abuse resulting in death for his role in allowing and facilitating an obviously dangerous situation which led to Victoria's death. At this point, Mr. Gonzalez is scheduled for trial in October of this year. The case against Jessica Kelly, meanwhile, is largely unaffected by the newly developed evidence in this case, and she remains charged with an open count of murder. She is expected to go on trial in January of 2019. And finally, in light of the most significant development in the course of the case to date, I have today authorized the filing of a criminal information against the unidentified male whose partial DNA profile was recovered from Victoria Martin's body and who remains at large. For the past several months, we have worked diligently with federal, state, and local law enforcement to identify and investigate numerous leads regarding who else was involved in this crime and bring them to justice. However, as that remains an active and ongoing investigation, I cannot comment on the specific steps initiated by law enforcement or any potential leads, other than to say that we do not believe this to be a random act of violence, but rather connected to those already implicated in this crime. I recognize that today's announcement will come as a shock to members of this community who, based on incomplete and inaccurate information, may have already formed an opinion about this case. But I want to assure the public that the District Attorney's Office and our law enforcement partners remain committed to identifying anyone who had a hand in this crime and bringing them to justice. We owe it to Victoria to get this right, and that's exactly what we intend to do. With that, I'll stand for questions. As I'm sure you can imagine, this announcement set off a firestorm in the media. Many members of the community were outraged that the murder charges had been dropped on Gonzalez and Martins. And rightly so, because due to a half-ass initial investigation, the media had reported what they believed to be the facts of Victoria's case repeatedly for nearly two years. Many had already convicted Michelle Martins in their minds, 
and believed she had actively participated in the rape and murder of her own daughter. And who could blame them? Those words had come from Michelle herself. While this announcement flipped the case upside down, there was still a 10-year-old girl at the center of this who had been sexually assaulted and brutally murdered. And according to the district attorney, an unknown male child murderer was still out there on the loose. And to date of this recording, that male has never been identified. Through the exhaustive investigation, plea deals, sentencing, and trials, which we'll get into next week, true justice for the little girl who loves swimming, going to church, gymnastics, her friends, the movie Frozen, and the color purple has not been served. True justice for 10-year-old Victoria Martin doesn't exist until all of those responsible for her murder are rotting in prison. Join me next week, same time, same place, for the conclusion of Victoria's case. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these podcasts. In the meantime, don't forget to check out Campus Crime Chronicles with Nicole Turner wherever you're listening right now. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.